1: What is that? It's the second time it's done. gone on. Oh, they never got home. They never got home. They never got home. those stuff, boys. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Oh, you can laugh. I the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You
0: don't know what you're talking about. Well, you yeah. I'd I'd like just to stay alive for oh, I'd, I'd, to it, I'd say it to you, guys. I'll say it to you, it to you oh. now. i down and What you're doing down here, you show me, man. <laughs> Hello there and welcome to the Irish Times, second captain's football podcast, pre-Ireland versus Georgia, in tonight's World Cup qualifier. Owen Murph and Ken all here. Hi, fellas. Hey, how, how are you? Are are you? I'm feeling okay. Should be feeling better, I guess, about tonight, seeing as we have played Georgia six times in competitive internationals and won all six. I know you're a stats man, Murph. You think that equates to a 100% record? Well, it does.
2: I mean, uh, Well, you would
0: be correct on that, yes. Statistical fact. It doesn't
3: necessarily have any bearing on future matches between the sides. Well, particularly...
0: Past performance is no indicator of <laughs> uh, future performance. Yeah. Well, sometimes it is. But if we'd been burying them 3-0 every time, I'd be feeling pretty comfortable. But if you look back at it, we never beat them by more than a goal. That's happened once in the six games that we've played in the last 10 or 12 years competitively. There's lots of 2-1s in there. Wait, Murphy, you're looking at me like I'm Martin O'Neill trying to talk <laughs> up the opposition here. No, no. It's just you said, we, yeah. it,
2: we've we never beaten them by more than one goal. We've only, only done it once. once.
0: Almost never, I said. Oh, wow. Run back the tape, Simon. That was, was that <laughs>
3: 2000, 2003, 2004, Robbie Keane?
0: Yeah, it was a home game. We had beaten them 2-1 away. Our usual 2-1 results against yep. the Plucky Georgians. Oh, Gary Dardy. Ke- Yeah, After Kevin Caban had a knife thrown in his general direction. Oh, yeah. I think that was the same game. Yeah, it, was, it was,
3: the, the very one. No?
0: Yeah, Gary Darty saved us on that occasion. Robbie Keane scored a couple in the next game a few months ago. Damien Duff produced a header in that game, I think, which
3: showed why he was the top-scoring player in the Premier League, never to have scored a header
0: for a long time.
3: He, he may still be. I am not. Sure. I can't think of Eden Hazard scoring too many headers. There's probably been one. But, uh, yeah.
0: And the most recent game finished 1-0, of course, at Lansing Road last year. A much-forgotten match. We all remember the McGeady uh, late goal. Forgotten by you. Away Juan. from home.
3: I still see Jeff Hendrick ah. dancing his way down the left side, transferring the ball from one foot to the other foot. Wait a minute. Did you see that? He <laughs> he just used both of what his sorcery. feet.
2: The referee should stop the game until we find out exactly what just happened there. What
3: just happened is like sorcery. Some kind of black magic happened down there, that left <laughs> side. I could have sworn the ball was on his right foot, and then suddenly it was on his left, and, he'd, and he was, had gone past the man. Uh, and John Walters, yeah i telling you, these are the moments
0: that uh, Ireland supporters will remember. So I shouldn't be concerned, Ken. We've, if we beat them... Oh, no, you should be concerned. Oh, I should be concerned. Our, our, our run of luck
2: against the Georgians has to end sometime. The odd no. goal
0: in three will be plenty for me tonight, Murph. i take it 2-1. I, I don't so know sorry, why I am now no speaking like po- a manager. <laughs> I'm no <laughs> If you're listening to this on the way home from the game on Thursday night or on your way to work on Friday morning and you're thinking, but lads, we've already gone and done the Georgians 3-0 with a hat-trick from Shane Long. We all know this. Why are, you, why are you still talking about this like it's before the game? Well, fear not, folks. We'll treat you to an extra Friday podcast to look back... I'm referring that bell. That's a Friday podcast bell. There we go. Uh, that'll be out for you tomorrow. So today's show, Ken, we're going to offer... A, well, we're going to look a little bit ahead to the game. We're also going to offer a critical appreciation of the literary works. of I'm going to describe him as the most underrated football manager come novelist in the game today. Well, the only. mm mm-hmm. Most underrated. <laughs> Um, Steve Bruce uh,
3: yeah we're going to talk to Seamus O'Reilly I'm sure some of you have read some of the uh, reviews that Seamus has done of the first two Steve Bruce books
0: these books are all old, they were all written like 10-15 years ago right? Um, or a, certainly a number of years ago ninety,
3: ninety nine. sort of this human stain era I guess Um, they they uh, yeah they, they are old and they're difficult to get hold of they're out of print they, they're still out there, but you're gonna have to pay a lot of money if you want to get a copy.
0: So Seamus O'Reilly, you're telling me, has got his hands on some. Yeah, and he's it's gonna, for the benefit of the rest of the world of literature. Yeah, he's gonna tell us what is contained in those pages. <laughs> yeah, This sounds like it's gonna be a weird piece, Ken. But I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's what we've got today. Yeah,
3: uh, the uh, the International Week. Obviously, it's a bit awkwardly structured Ireland match on a Thursday night isn't really good for us. so that's Well, why it's we're... great for us,
0: Ken, because we get to come into the office, on, uh, into the studio, indeed, on a Friday and belt out another podcast. Well, that's good, I suppose. That is all, great. That's also good. And I'm looking forward to today's report on sport.
3: So, Martin O'Neill is uh, saying that he needs someone in his team to score a goal tonight. Mm. Someone's got to score a goal. Um, our best scorer has retired, he said. Uh, we need uh, other players to step forward. Shane Long hasn't scored in a very long time. No, been, he
0: seems to have given up on the scoring this season.
3: Yeah, that's this has been.
0: Uh, this uh, has has been, he scored all season?
3: No, no. he hasn't scored since the uh, Holland game uh, pre Euro 2016 friendly. You may remember he. Yes. He uh, bundled in over the line in that game, and that was his last goal for anybody. And he's he got just to,
2: needs one off his arse or whatever, Ken. Mm. you know? Doesn't need to be the cleanest
3: strike in the world. Well, he just needs to get... Get on the end of something. The, I mean, he's got a bit of a problem that he hadn't that he didn't have at Southampton uh, lately, which is... Well, first of all, the manager has changed at Southampton, so you never are quite sure how you're going to stand in the eyes of a new manager. Charlie Austin is... I mean, Charlie Austin was there last season, but has kind of managed to get into the team and importantly, I think, scored a couple of goals. Mm-hmm. And Charlie Austin famously was was dismissed by one of the owners of West Ham as not having any ligaments left in his knees. Uh, however, uh, grinding and clanking around on those uh, uh, sort of worn-out joints, he still managed to bang in a couple of goals, which Shane hasn't managed to do. And as a striker, that's really counts for a lot. Shane Long is clearly a better team player than Charlie Austin. He's gonna give you he's gonna give the team more in a lot of areas. He's a much better athlete. He's he's a more unselfish player. But does he score any goals? The answer so far this season is no.
0: He's got a better house.
3: It's <laughs> a house.
0: We all saw it there on T V three recently.
3: It is a pretty amazing house. I mean I was I was like, wow, this is this is what you can get for like, is it forty three Premier League goals? That I think his career total is forty three. But well,
0: it's what you can get around Southampton. You know that's why I was kind of thinking. I, I told you kind of time I, I sent this auntie and I said, "Wow, if I was a Premier League player, what? Was, Why do players always insist on living in London? What's so great about that? Living in some pokey? Have you seen uh, pokey four bedroom house? Probably. Have you seen Mesut Ozil's house in London? Pretty amazing, is it? <laughs> Does it have a swimming pool in a sort of conservatory type area? Such as is enjoyed by the Longs.
2: I don't know, but it is in London. And it's still pretty good. I I
3: didn't see it. Uh, I haven't seen Ozil's house. Uh, Maybe he's
2: moved again now. But I, I think when he first moved to London, within a couple of months, I saw a house that was quite frankly... Disgusting. Yeah. Well, <laughs> in its beauty. Yeah. It was. Uh, there was a bit of class to it as well, and I have to say it wasn't. it wasn't particularly gaudy now. It was just really top class real estate.
3: So uh, we will talk a bit more about the I mean we do, we don't know what the Ireland team is going to be yet. Um I mean James Coleman is the captain so he's probably going to play. Shane Duffy is back from suspension. Um he might play because he's he might score a goal as much as for any other reason. Uh he does give you um a target at a pieces. Um who will play you know, who else could play central defence? It's unlikely to be Kieran Clark. It's probably going to be one of uh, O'Shea or Kyo alongside Duffy, although you know, I'm, I'm assuming Duffy's in here. He, he he may not be. Ward, I would say, is a likely left back. Um,
0: Give with, Robbie Brady another goal in midfield, is what you're
3: saying? I think so. I just, you know, I think it works. I think that Martin O'Neill likes to get James McLean in the team. Um, and I don't. And I don't think that's really. A, I don't think it's a bad idea. The way that our team is, you know, I actually think that McLean is. I mean, he's you know technically obviously not the greatest player, but he is. I think he gives us something that that not a lot of other players have in terms of his energy, and and running, um, and kind of direct play. Uh, I think that he's he played quite well uh, in his recent appearances, and I imagine that he will he will continue. So then. Um, assuming that chain Long starts and John Walters will start, given that he's now fully fit again. Um, a lot of it then depends on on, uh, on James McCarthy, whether James McCarthy's going to be fit. If he is, then I'd say Hendrick, Brady, McCarthy in, in the middle, McLean on the left, Walters on the right, Long up front, and Ward left back would be my expectation. Oh, was there a Wes?
0: No, no. Was there no Wes in there? No, there's no Wes. Is, is that no, is this Ken's This is my expectation. You're expected. So you would have Wes, but you think might.
3: Well, Wes has been struggling against the Norwich team as well. Um, so you'd have to really see what he was like in training, I suppose. I mean, this is this is just what I expect, though. I think that that's what what only will go for. So I yeah.
0: would be pretty annoyed if I was Ronald Koeman, as he, and he's already expressed his annoyance ahead of the game. If the first I see of my m- midfield player, pretty much all season, well, bar at the very start. First in about six weeks. First time I see him. First time since
3: Cooman took him off in the first half of the game.
0: Yeah, is out playing for his country. As Kuman said, there's nothing we can do about it. He's if if he's called up, he's called up. But I just hope they approach with caution.
3: Well, this is always going on with Everton, isn't it? I mean, particularly I suppose it's because we've quite a few Everton players, and and McCarthy in particular has had complicated injury issues. Um.
2: Well, I was going to say, I mean, it is, if I was to pick an Irish player who would risk uh, pissing off his club to play despite having been injured for six weeks, James McCarthy wouldn't be the top of that list.
3: Yeah, but it's a slightly different situation now, isn't it? Yeah. Because, I mean, he had he was working for Roberto Martinez since he was like 18 years old. And Martinez had been his only manager at Wigan and Everton. Martinez is gone now. Cumin. Maybe he doesn't even fancy McCarthy all that much. We don't know. I mean, all we know is that he's taken him off in the first half of a game and we hasn't been seen since. Being taken off in the first half of a game, I'm sure, was a new experience for James McCarthy and not a pleasant one. Um, before maybe he... So what I'm saying is maybe that has slightly conditioned his attitude to the advice that he gets from his club. If the club were saying, oh, hang back there a bit, James. We're not sure. We're looking at those scans and were a little bit mm, you know um if that was the case uh, previously you know his previous manager um a guy who clearly backed him in in that he signed him twice um you know maybe then he would be he he, he would think okay I I will I will hold off this a little bit look you know I mean, players get angry when you suggest that they've when they suggest that you've done this that that they've you know Uh, not picked and and chosen I don't want to get into a war awards I don't want to get into a (laughs) war (laughs) awards yeah he doesn't he never wants to get into a war awards but you know if you can sometimes let your football do the talking playing a bit of football for your national team looking as though you were fit I mean whether he is or not I don't know Martin is saying that he he is or that he's never played anyone who wasn't we all thought immediately of John Walters in the Euros hobbling uh, around on his one leg. But he was fit, I think, at the moment that he took the field. It was only about two minutes later that the uh, that the injury pranged again and he was he uh, he was reju- he was reduced to that uh, sad state.
0: It's all water off a duck's back anyway, the weekend, isn't it? It's usually,
3: usually water off a duck's back. Um, so we will return to the subject of Ireland tomorrow when we have more information, i.e. the match.
0: Well, we'll still get a prediction at the end of the show.
3: Uh, okay. But in the meantime... Um, Jamie Vardy's book is coming out from nowhere. Um. (laughs) They didn't
2: go with the having a party. I I kind of half expected, you know, something in that realm.
3: Well, the guy, I was reading it. There was an interview with Vardy in The Times where the guy was like, oh, you know, my daughter was singing the line, Jamie Vardy's having a party. Bring your vodka and your Charlie to me as I got the train. Uh, to meet you this morning, Jamie. And he says, it's worse when it's five-year-olds singing it to you, says says Jamie Vardy. I always turn around and say, I don't think you should be singing that. And the parents say, no, it's all right. His cousin's called Charlie. He thinks he's turning up to your party with his cousin. (laughs) Jesus. So Vardy... So that's lovely then. (laughs) Vardy talks about how he lives there. He lives um, in Leicester, in a house where everyone knows where he lives. And people are continually calling around to his house. And he's kind of like this local... Uh, you know, legendary super celebrity, and it's basically impossible for him to live there now, which is why he's moving to the country <laughs> <laughs> to to a secluded mansion away from his fans. Uh, there are simply two peace and quiet at the moment. We don't get it. We've got people ringing the doorbell at three in the morning. We can't really do out, family wise. I can't take the kids to the local play center, just get mobbed by fans. So he's trying, they're basically trying to you now bring up their children in a normal way. And it's kind of impossible because everywhere Vardy goes, people wanted to get a photo. He would much rather not be famous, do everything he's done, but just not be famous. Um, But he, uh, (laughs) I mean, so Jamie Vardy talks about his Skittle vodka. Jesus. Uh, I had a three liter vodka bottle at home that I will put loads and loads of Skittles in. Once one batch of Skittles had fully dissolved, I'd top it up with more. I kept repeating the process. I must have put a different batch of Skittles in at least 20 times. After that, you can drink the vodka neat, and it tastes just like Skittles. So you don't get that minging taste. When I was feeling bored at home in the evening, I'd pour myself a glass, sit back, and enjoy.
0: I mean... Uh, Hold on, this isn't for a a party, this is just for his own social...
3: Yeah, Vardy likes extremely sweet alcoholic drinks, so he was speaking or there was an interview with him there recently where he was talking about, uh, he he drinks like a, you know, half, like a 250 mils of port Mm. the night before a game. He sits there watching TV and drinking port out of like a Leucoside bottle, because I think the to, just so his brain thinks he's getting some even extra sugar, but he drinks the he drinks his port because it, it sort of chills him out, relaxes him, makes it easier for him to sleep. That's what he. But uh, Skittle vodka.
0: That's that's. I'm going to say that's a lot of skills. That's. I mean. He's absorbing twenty bags of sweets worth of sugar into, well, into if, his alcoholic. Well, beverage. that would be
3: if he. That would be if he drank the whole. If he drank bottle, the whole three liters. I mean. Still though, it's it's. I mean, it's quite a lot. It's quite a lot. I mean, it's a bag. It's a bag every three shots, I think, roughly. No, it's bag every double, double. Well, I don't know. It's a lot of skills. It's a lot. Um, <laughs> and I, Sorry, d- yeah. There's a lot of detail here. That's a port out
2: of a LucasAid Aid bottle. I mean,
3: yeah. Well, what's just,
2: the port? What's the port supposed to be doing?
3: Well, the port presumably comes in like a you know a, a, a larger glass bottle with one of those corks, you know. Mm. Port. Which do you want to put that in your training bag? If you want to, you know, if you could stay in the night in the hotel with the team or whatever, do you really want to ha- be carrying around a bottle of port? No, that's why he puts it in a in a plastic bottle just for ease of transport, I guess. Um, if he's at home, I guess he he probably just uses a glass. Uh, he doesn't say, but um, he talks about a few a few different things. I mean, I say the book is going to be good because Stuart James is the was the writer who was doing it with him, and he's very good. Um, he, you know, and he was kind of covering Leicester last year. He kind of knows it very well. And Vardy's obviously got a very interesting story. This interview, the subject of Vardy's uh, family situation comes up. Um, the striking thing about his family situation was that when he got married to his wife Becky uh, in May, remember he took a he took a day off England or he missed yeah. an England game or an England friend or something else, like that. That uh, neither her mother nor his parents were in attendance. Um, so he's asked about you know what? Uh, basically, his parents just don't don't like his um his wife Rebecca. Uh, it is what it is. People fall out with their parents every day. It's tragic, but I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. Um. Uh, everything came to a head after Sophia was born. It had come to feel as though my parents didn't like Becky. It reached a stage where my agent got involved to try to sort everything out. It means they've still not seen their granddaughter. It's their loss. I've got a family I need to look after. So that's... uh, That's pretty sad, isn't it? Yeah. That's unfortunate. Although it's often... It's kind of... It's often the way, you know? Yeah. The...
0: uh, Well, usually... uh, Parents don't like
3: the new wife.
0: Usually the parents would go to the wedding, though. They wouldn't go so far as to not be at their son's wedding go to the wedding or and bury make, the hatchet uh, for it, so they can for the sake of the grandkids grandchild. or something like that yeah sit there not always
3: go to the wedding and sit there making poisonous comments yeah pretty much um <laughs> That's why people th-
2: invite me to their wedding yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> um yeah uh, I, I don't know I, evidently things have things have gone a little bit too far but you know uh, that book will be out soon um what else there's an interesting piece that i uh uh, Andrew Mangan at Arsbloch, an interesting piece. Just talking a little bit about uh, how he kind of... Arsenal maybe are the club most associated with the genre of... Well, Arsenal fan TV. Arsenal fan TV is obviously... Uh, is maybe the foremost... Uh, the market leader. Fan TV uh, brand sure. in the world at this time. I mean, it can change overnight. It can change in the blink of an eye. There was a time when Andy Tate uh, ruled the land. But, you know, he's been neutered now. He's been co-opted. I mean, did you see the interview with José Mourinho? No. no. Oh yeah. Um, what? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, it 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 happened. It's out there. You can you can look at it after the show. Well
2: certainly will not, Ken, but I mean it's still shocking that it that it exists,
0: that R- it's out there.
3: Arsenal TV have this have this you know gifted ensemble and it's great, it's brilliant when you look at look back at, at their reactions after they lost four three to Liverpool in the opening day of the season.
0: I'm telling you, fam. Um
3: and you and then compare it to what's happening at the moment because Arsenal are, are doing really well. It's a few weeks late. We are late.
0: fucked, blood. No, they're do, <laughs> doing
3: a lot better. They're doing a lot better than that uh, now. And it's kind of like, well, you know, how can this, this is all this, this is the same team. And uh, Andrew just makes the point. Uh, I saw BBC show BBC, the BBC show uh, the other day with Ian Wright, Martin Keown, Amy Lawrence. I thought of how these guys are rightly held in such a team. They won things. They did incredible things for the club. I wonder how they might have survived in this era when every, in which everybody lives under a microscope. Um, basically, if Keon had made a defensive mistake, some blow-granted and raved on Arsenal fan TV afterwards, would it change the perception of him? If Ian Wright fell out with a manager, would everyone have been on his side? Or would there be those whose belief the club is sacrosanct and can do nothing wrong have turned some against him? Would Tony Adams have been so easily forgiven his drunk driving when there are millions of people making judgment? Sometimes being better informed is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, Ignorance is not always bliss, but sometimes it is. Basically, kind of the way in which... the is just so extreme. Like, actually, that's a good point about Tony Adams. I mean, can you imagine someone surviving that now? The, you know, uh, the captain of Arsenal Football Club crashes a car drunk and goes to jail.
2: Well, didn't Arturo Vidal do it in the middle of the Copa America?
3: Yeah. Arturo Vidal didn't do no time for that. Uh, he did. He was definitely involved in a car crash, and I remember at the time that there was some talk of his condition. Had he just he'd just come from a casino, you know what I mean? And and the car was was a fairly mangled sight. But popular uh, popular Chile player Arturo Vidal uh, ended up not having to go to jail for that. Uh, as to exactly where that investigation is, I admit of taking my eye off the ball.
0: Um, uh, football fans are extremely forgiving Even now Even with everything that's there You know Danny Simpson Won the league last year After a pre-season that saw him in court In fact convicted Of choking his girlfriend Of strangling I should say Strangling his ex-girlfriend At their home uh, He was given a load of Community service 300 hours community service And it was brought up The odd time during the season You see it pop up from time to time Why is this guy being celebrated When he's You know After doing this terrible thing but that was about it. There was no national outcry or anything like this. Uh, so I, I don't know if I, just because supporters know more about players, I don't know if that makes it necessarily that much more w- likely that they're going to ham- go to town on them for yeah. A p- in a weird way, yeah. No, I, like I understand the point that Andrew's
2: making, but in a weird way, maybe the internet does also sometimes provide a safe space for people to just agree with each other. You know that. that okay, I, I actually don't care about Tony Adams' drink driving. I just care about how good a footballer he is. Yeah. And that's not the sort of thing that you can say out loud, maybe. Yeah. But then you find on the internet loads of people who agree with you. Therefore, you're emboldened to... This anti-drink driving
3: thing has gone too far. Yeah. I remember the old days. Yeah. Um, you,
2: know, you know, it, it is it's, it is kind of weird. I mean, it, it I think it can cut, it can cut both ways.
3: Uh, or then you go on the internet. And you see Mesut Ozil and Alexi Sanchez demanding a quarter of a million pounds a week from Arsenal Football Club. Um, Arsenal have been talking to their you know, two best players. Mm-hmm. Maybe two, two top players at Arsenal, I'm not sure. But maybe their two biggest stars. Um, and uh, so they, they had been speaking to them last year about, oh, you know, you guys, we obviously we, we value your contribution we would like to sign you to new contracts. Um, the current uh, contracts that they're on, 140 grand a week for Ozil, 130 grand for Sanchez. And Arsenal were suggesting a figure in the region of 180. It's not going to code it, I'm afraid. Uh, they'll both need 250 grand a week <laughs> according to today's reports. Oh God, this is so expensive. But I do wonder how, what that has to do with it as well. The... Um, you know, when you hear, for instance, this reported in the Times, numerous factors have led to their representatives reappraising their market value, such as the diminishing amount of time left on their existing contracts, which expire in the summer of 2018, the inflationary effect on other players' wages of the new Premier League television deal, which began at the start of the season, and perhaps most crucially, the declining value of the pound since the Brexit vote in June. Um, how this conditions fans' feelings about players... Uh, when they see these kinds, you know what I mean.
2: And Brexit, <laughs> Should probably say, if only we'd been in- given the full picture on Brexit yeah. and the fact that our football heroes will henceforth be ne- needing lots more cash.
3: Yeah, money which ultimately comes from you. Um, I don't know. Uh, I do, it, it is it, once you're getting once you're sort of getting two hundred and fifty grand a week, then maybe it is fair that you're just expected to perform. Every single time, and pilloried if you, pilloried if you don't. It's just the price of getting that kind of money.
0: Speaking of players being pilloried, Can Wayne Rooney.
3: Wayne Rooney is, uh, well, probably going to be playing for England. Um, be pretty surprising if he wasn't uh, this uh, this weekend. But uh, he did he did some interviews with the um, English media. They're playing England are playing Malta on Saturday. Um, but he did some interviews with the uh, sort of number one football writers. And, well, he, he, I mean, he writes a couple of things. First of all, it's clear that, the, I suppose the interesting thing about it was, remember the, the whole business with Allardyce saying, Rooney, uh, he's got more experience than me, he dies where he likes. Yeah. Um, Rooney was really angry about that. Um, he says, uh, but basically he said, I suffered from that, I got battered. Um, he said it, it couldn't be further from the truth. Basically, the uh, suggestion that Rooney was somehow picking the team or deciding the tactics, he said, couldn't be further from the truth. Um, he said, basically, uh, you know, I play where I want. Allardyce knew knew that he'd made a mistake. That's part of being at this level. Basically, Allardyce was now was learning on the job. You know, you can't do that kind of stuff. He apologized to Rooney afterwards. Apparently, um, they asked him, "Did you have you sent Allardyce a you know?" good luck message or sorry, thanks for good to work with you. And Rooney just says, no. So, uh, yeah, (laughs) I thought that was kind of grave actually given that Allardyce. Well, I mean, Rooney didn't obviously didn't respect Allardyce for, you know, giving, entrusting him with the captaincy and making him a key player. There was no, let's say gratitude from Rooney's part on that. And then there was, when it was compounded by this, uh, it wasn't that really, it was like, oh, you know, that's great. Sam has faith in me. It was like, of course I should be captain. You know what I mean? He's just, he's just made the obvious decision there. And then when Aradice came out and said all this about, oh, you know, Wayne's got much more, that actually cost him a lot of respect. Which for was
0: actually, yeah, it was meant as a compliment by Sam. He probably yeah. thought,
3: after I'm response. ingratiating myself. Yeah,
0: maybe I've gone too far there praising Wayne, but, you know, what player doesn't like to be praised in that way?
3: No, you have abased yourself before me, and I've lost all respect for you. <laughs> Unfortunately, was what was happening in, in Rooney's brain.
0: That's, yeah. yeah, will I wrap it up again?
3: Let's wrap it up. Uh, Just the very last thing. Uh, uh, I mean, the, Rooney is, is appraising his, his uh, situation. I mean, he did say, oh, you know, I, 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 he, he more or less admitted he can't play up front anymore. He said, if I'm sitting here at 25, 26, we're talking about playing central midfield or deep midfield. I wouldn't want to play there, of course. But now I'm at a stage where that might be better than me. It's obvious I'm not as quick as I was. You always have a football brain, though, and I've got that. He, he's kind of he's basically saying he's lost his powers. You know, he's, he's he's admitting that. Um which at least is a kind of an you know an honest self-appraisal in in some ways. You know, he's saying, well Realistically, I'm not the player I was. You know, it would be worse in a way if he was was insisting that he still was. Um, Although, you know, a lot of footballers kind of do have that mentality, I can do no wrong. It's kind of how, it's it's one of the mental tricks they use to prevent themselves from becoming demoralized and depressed when they play badly. I didn't play badly. Um, Mario Balotelli, for instance, Balotelli is ripping it up in Nice. It's like he's finally found the appropriate stage for his talents.
0: He's up to thirty percent now, work rate or whatever it is. Eighty uh, percent. I'd say it's gone the other way now. <laughs> it's like he, he's he's
2: done the groundwork and now he can just like water ski to the end of the season.
3: He obviously uh, is is kind of now that, now that he's vindicated himself with like his several goals for Nice as they've raced to the top of the French league. Uh, he's now uh, taking shots at all the critics who have who have tried to do him down. All the people who told him he never meant to nothing. Uh, Jurgen Klopp, that kind of that kind of guy. Um, AC Milan. The city, the ugly cities of Milan and Liverpool. Unlike the beautiful city of Nice, which obviously is in the side of France. Um, but the Italian people as well. The Italian people come in for a bit of criticism. Uh, he says, it's impossible to win the hearts of the Italian people. I wouldn't be able to, even if I won the World Cup in and European Championship. Um, I'm still angry at Prandelli for replacing me against Uruguay at the World Cup. Cesare Prandelli, the Italy manager in the Brazilian World Cup, took Mario Balotelli off at halftime of the Italy-Uruguay match, the match in which uh, Suarez bit Giorgio Codini. I was at that match. Mario Balotelli's performance in the first 45 minutes is the worst I've ever seen anybody ever play. (laughs) It's literally the worst... Performance, I've the the most ludicrous, the most absurd performance I've ever seen from a football player. Just no movement. He's he's sulking, stalking around. He he took one ridiculous shot, which just dribbled, sort of it it, it sort of wouldn't have made it all the way to the goal. That kind, that kind of thing, you know, shots. What he just was so atrocious, so so bad. I mean, I've I've seen some bad performances. on I mean, I, I watched through my fingers, Kieran Clark. His one-man um, mission to score against Ireland, uh, you know, that, that 10 minutes when Clark just kept lashing the ball at our goal oh, that in, was in Paris against, against Sweden. Sweden. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you just took that 10 minutes, that was still just where, where the only thing Clark did was head and kick the ball at the Ireland goal, eventually scoring an own goal. That was still better than what Balotelli was doing. Because at least Clark was trying to get involved, honestly. You know, at least Clark was saying, "Right, I'm going to try and do, and everything he did just went wrong, and it was kind of flying towards the goal." But at least there was kind of a sense, right? This guy knows what he's trying to do. He just, unluckily, you know, it's sort of stepping on the rakes here. He's stepping on every rake that's out on that pitch. It's, it's not good. But I'll tell you, it was just, you know, and he's angry about being taken off. I couldn't believe this when I saw. I saw, "Of all the games, this this surely must be your worst game." And you're saying you're still angry two years later with the coach who took you off because you had let down your teammates. The coach who had backed you. The coach. Nobody wanted Balotelli there. Nobody wanted Balotelli there. Prandelli picked him. Prandelli put him in the team. He scored against England. Prandelli kept picking him. He did nothing. They lost to was it Costa Rica. Um, and he did nothing. And he kept him in the team against Uruguay and he let him down. And he eventually said, "I can't. I can't defend you anymore. I have to take you off." That was just. Rubbish, and Balotelli's still angry about it. That's uh, incredible to me. That's it
0: for Gennardy's report on sport. <laughs>
1: Well, there a lot of great moments. The performance against Italy was fantastic. Not winning the game against Sweden was actually a disappointment to me. Is back
2: to the edge of the
1: pitch. Yeah. I felt at the start of the tournament you needed to win a game to give yourself a really decent chance of qualifying. And it looked as if we'd spurned that. Combining that there with the crowd that we had, the supporters that we took, the humour that they uh, had throughout the tournament, uh, the stories coming back, of those youtube things of the numb on the train singing um, our father martin Heffendale. i think that was brilliant and far more highs than lows i have to say From
3: time to time, It's all to the
2: in Seals the three points for Belgium. Into the penalty. <laughs> it's gonna it. be, it. be, it. it. be with the goal! he has got some space. Block's trying to swivel.
1: He's got down. Oh Reppard is trying right to the penalty spot. And Ireland oh oh have a big chance inside. So one minute, 15 seconds. Wow against
0: Hugo Lloris. Arnold leading, the Lyon. Oh.
2: What a start. What a perfect start. Trans turned the screw.
1: Oh, a it's, well, you know it's Griezmann. And Griezmann makes it too. Two goals in three minutes. Off goes Griezmann again. Put in by Giroud. Griezmann pops up, and that's a penalty. Court.
2: Shane Duffy is on. Griezmann's done the damage yet again. Is the time for to get it off the pitch? There isn't. The dream has died. the road, having fought the good fight.
1: Just felt like it was there for us today. Yeah. Fans are unbelievable and we'd love, love to go a bit further for them, but um, we hope we made people proud because our fans are amazing and everyone back home is amazing. And as I said, we're just disappointed we couldn't see that.
0: We're joined now by Seamus O'Reilly, who writes for the Irish Times and also happens to be the world's foremost authority on the literary works of Steve Bruce. How did your interest in these works of high art develop?
1: Um, Well, I've always had uh, a passion for really, really terrible books. Um, And I did hear, I heard a little bit of uh, whispers about them. One of them fell into my lap uh, last February, I think. And... um, Pretty much read it in, in like two goes. Um, they're, they're not very long. And uh, yeah, I've been much addicted. But after that, the main problem was just that they were very, very rare. I don't know if they've been suppressed, perhaps by the publisher or by Steve himself, but they were pretty hard to get hold of. So that was the next battle was actually getting the next two.
3: Um, can you describe, they, they all seem to be based around the adventures of, of a central character. Can you describe this main character, Steve Barnes, and does he resemble anyone in real life?
1: Yeah, it's funny, I mean we've had, we have a crack team of people going through um seeing if we get any hints. Now the, the current operating premise is that it's actually it's actually kind of like an author surrogate f- for Steve Bruce himself. So um his name is Steve Barnes. Um if you think about it, it's kind of a little bit like Steve Bruce. Um he also manages Lettersford Town. Um sometimes called Lettersfield Town because, you know, why not? Um and so the, the he, uh, name of the team Steve- pa-
3: Actually, changes yeah, from sentence to sentence.
1: It does, yeah, okay. it does. Um, basically, the, on the back of the actual book, it says Lettersfield. On the front of the, and in the contact of the books, it says uh, it says Lettersford. Um, there are characters whose names change. Yeah, in the middle of a page, um, yeah. So that is the kind of level of detail. So it is surprising that they have such uh, sort of complex, highfalutin literary devices as. Sort of author surrogates. He also has team surrogates. So, for example, he manages Lettersford Town when he was actually in real life managing Huddersfield Town. Um, He talks about his glory days at Mulcaster United. (laughs) Um, which we're going to go right ahead and presume is Manchester United. Um, But he also, the the weird thing about that is sort of a Roy of the Rovers kind of thing of, you know, Melchester, or you kind of make up a fictional place. You kind of think maybe it's because he doesn't want to step on the toes of people he's talked to. But he still mentions all those other people. So he still mentions Manchester United. He still mentions Alex Ferguson or walking around outside Old Trafford. Um, But he also talks about Mulcaster. So it's a very, he's kind of overpopulating this fake (laughs) sort of universe of of fictional teams, which I I kind of described as a a crap Westeros filled with, (laughs) you know, with pies and fags.
3: Does he have any, in this this portrait of Alex Ferguson, I mean, is is there a, a thinly disguised Kind of managerial titan at, at Mulcaster United.
1: Uh, Do you know what? he doesn't actually mention the he does he, he does say his former manager at Mulcaster, but then he also separately in the book talks about Alex Ferguson just as Alex Ferguson. You know he'll say hey, you don't have to be Alex Ferguson to to work that one out that kind of stuff. Okay. So it, it's slightly muddled. Um, it's like he's kind of um, he's perhaps got the he, he's understood some of the grammar of a book, the sort of structure. But none of it really kind of holds together co- coherently because, yeah, as I say, he, he will go to the great lengths of, you know, talking about, say, for example, um, all these fake places and fake names. But he, he mentions all the real versions as well. So you don't know which, <laughs> what kind of weird, swollen, you know, British Isles it is that he's describing. <laughs> um.
0: <laughs> so uh,
3: what, uh, what are the preoccupations of Steve Barnes? I mean, what, what, what drives him? What makes him tick?
1: Well, it's um, he's he does he does like to get embroiled in in, in things which are maybe slightly beyond his uh, his station. So he's a, he's a football man. He's uh, you know plain bread. He loves to tell you about what breakfast he's had. Um, in the latest book, he goes to uh, Brazil, and uh, he um, I think he mentions what he eats every single day. In fact, every single meal when he's there, he loves describing what he's eating. Um, he also has a bit of a a habit of getting mixed up in murders. Um, not himself personally, but you know, sometimes he's accused. Um, sometimes he is involved in something which is a suspicious death, which turns out to be a murder. Um, in the first book, uh, his star striker, an Irishman, uh, the Irishman named Duffy, I believe, uh, is stabbed in the changing room, and so he's kind of embroiled in this. You know, how did this happen on your patch? Some people in the press are actually saying that maybe he did it. So his basic thing is to kind of, despite the fact he hasn't got the training, the wherewithal, the time, or anything. And like the resources to be a homicide detective, he takes it upon himself to be the world's worst homicide detective.
3: Well, well I do understand. Um, I mean, why Why don't the police take charge of the investigations?
1: That's a very, very good question, especially because they are present and they do come in and they actually also tell him not to get involved. <laughs> and also, you know, Barnes himself consistently says throughout, I would never make a good homicide detective. And then there's just another 20 pages of him being, you know, we're actually living up to that by being a really bad uh, homicide detective. Um, in the second book, for example, he is embroiled in. It's probably the magnum opus, I think, of the three books. Um, if it's if it's not bad for me to play favorites, uh, in that one, the sort of very brief uh, twenty-second version of the plot is uh, a caretaker, the sweeper of the title. It's a sort of a very clever pun. Again, he's you know um, quite. You think quite it's a, you think
3: it's going to be a, a sort of central defensive player, but actually, it's got... the ground.
1: No, I mean that's that's you know quite horribly literal of you. Um he's actually working on a slightly higher level. Um he's uh, he's gone for the pun there. So um there's a, a janitor, shall we say, a sort of a caretaker at the club, he goes he goes down, he's dead, and it turns out that uh he may or may not have been a, a, a sort of a Yugoslavian war criminal, uh, who's been hunted both by the British Secret Service and by sort of Nazi hunting Mossad agents from Israel. Um all of this is delivered with the sort of tact you would imagine from uh, an, a current manager, a former player, who is for some reason spending three weeks of the year 1999 to 2000 writing three uh, very brisk, and very strange murder mysteries. He,
3: he, sorry, he wrote them. He wrote them all in one three-week burst of creativity.
1: It, it would appear that that's the case. So, I mean, the current operating principle is, or the premise is that he is, uh, he you know, sat down with a guy um, from Paragon Press Publishing. Uh, I've got to imagine that there was, you know, a little bit of ghostwriting involved, but, you know, uh, I'm sure more details of that will shake out now that we've blown the case wide open in typical Steve Barnes style. But uh, he, yeah, he sat down and did them in a very, very short space of time. Um, and one thing that I have kind of, pulled apart in the last review was that uh, one of the sort of maybe slightly ironic things is that at this exact moment whenever he started putting these out or doing this whole process, uh, Hoderssey were actually doing really really well. I mean they were thinking the, they were in the conversation for promotion uh, they were in the you know the top four top six and pretty much exactly when he started bringing the books out, there was a definite slalom to the point where they were you know sort of mid-table finishers in the first and, uh, you know the second tier um, to the point where actually the following October about three or four months after the last book was released, uh, he was sort of unceremoniously sacked. So it's it's almost as if uh, Steve Barnes' own... Uh, Leeds United on trial. <laughs> what, what's that,
3: sorry? Dave O'Leary's book, a similarly ill-starred book that he brought out uh, just as Leeds were doing really oh. well, and it all just fell apart.
1: Was it was his a murder mystery as well?
3: No, uh, it was a courtroom drama, uh, Based on real was it events. Really? Well, it was a courtroom drama based on the trial of uh, two of his own players, which may have contributed to the fact that it didn't go down that well uh, in the <laughs> dressing room.
0: Seamus, has Bruce talked much about this brief interlude in his career where he writes these kind of nutty crime, football crime novels? Has he explained what he was trying Jesus. to do? Why did. It?
1: He's not actually gone into too much detail about it. He has been asked about it once or twice. I think they've kind of been sort of like Sam that, that, have been passed around from, you know, sort of football journalists and sarcastic types um, who don't appreciate the full majesty of them as I do as a serious academic, obviously. Um, but they've been a kind of a running joke, I'd say. Um, it's fair to say. And they've been brought up a few times. There was a Daily Mail or some sort of local press. Uh, there's a few little interviews where it's mentioned. And uh, he kind of, is very self-deprecating uh, um and he says, oh, you know, I don't know what I was thinking just because I've got one GCSE uh, in English. Um, now, I knew that he had a GCSE in English because Steve Barnes, the narrator of these books, mentions it, I think, eight or nine times in the first book. Um, but he he mentions it mostly as a good thing. You know, he's like, I've got a fancy, you know, GCSE in English, GCSE in English. He keeps mentioning it. Um, and probably the best example of this is when he says, two star-crossed lovers. Um, it just uses it in conversation to refer to two characters. <laughs> and his secretary is so impressed that it, it, he has to say, look, Julie, his secretary, his long-suffering secretary, I would say, um, is from Romeo and Juliet. She says, you never cease to surprise me. You know, I mean, it is probably the most famous play of all time. But You know, <laughs>
3: um. <laughs> um, you know it's one thing that kind of strikes me when you think about this is why more people haven't attempted to set popular fiction in the world of football, given that it is a world in which, you know, so many millions of people spend much of their yeah. sort of mental time. I mean, my dad is always on at me, you know, why don't you, why don't you write a book about, uh, you know, imagine the England football team is kidnapped and they're, taken, they're, take, they're, they're on the way to the World Cup and the plane is taken to Iran, you, know, you kick it off from there, you know, why don't you, and I, I, I suppose I don't really know the answer to why I haven't done it. But I mean, it seems like when you look, not many people have done it at all. Why? Why don't people explore this world more often?
1: Well, I think um, I was I was having to thinking about it earlier. Um, the Damned United was the only one, but I mean, that's it's kind of quasi-fictional. I mean, it's a retelling of real events with very obvious fictional overtones and stuff. Um, and it's inside the mind of this Brian Clough, uh, carship. But yeah, it's, I'm trying to think of one that's just a straight up. Well, there's the, the Arsenal color. one that, sure, that was made into
0: be. a movie. Yeah, there was uh, the Arsenal Stadium mystery. Is that what it was called? I'm pretty sure it was based on a book and was made into a movie. So there are one or, one or two knocking around all right, but it doesn't seem to, they don't seem yeah. to have broken into our consciousness. I
1: think to, to some extent it might be that they're just non-overlapping magisteria. That it's, it's a little bit like why they, they can't really nail down you know, a perfect uh, football movie, or, or you know, or yeah. that because boxing maybe lends itself more to it. Um, you know, you think of great sport films, and football is not really covered very well, possibly because it's just so hard to translate the energy of such a complex game um into you know actors doing that thing it's harder to do and look cool in slow motion I mean I don't know and that's something where you've got all the visual the tips and tricks of you know cinematography to make everything look amazing if you're trying to describe it on the page then you'd have to be maybe you'd have to be you know Ernest Hemingway describing a bullfight in order to make it leap off the page (laughs) maybe it doesn't actually work too well from a dramatic point of view Mm -hmm. um and I think these books um kind of prove that really um uh Steve Bruce avoids talking about football as much as he can. There's about in total between the three books, maybe twenty pages that even really mention football matches. Uh the rest of it is just, just straightforward murder, mystery, kidnappings, hostages, that kind of thing.
0: Well yeah, the straightforward so Well listen, Seamus O'Reilly I wouldn't normally ask where people could go and get these books, but it sounds like <laughs> you've got about the only copy of each of them. So uh, maybe they co- contact you directly or something.
1: That's right, and uh, the third book fell into my paw there yesterday. So when uh, we've got a review for that, that'll be up on the dot So uh, that's where they can at least get a little bit get, and, uh, get, get, if get a taste that I can show. It.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you carry all three around with you at all times. Listen, Shame is brilliant. <laughs> Thanks for talking to us.
1: No worries. Thanks again. Just a crying big baby. But you cannot call a player a baby.
3: Game you wanted victory, but I didn't have a weapon. I want victory for every game. Where do you think you got it
0: all wrong today? Coach, is, is the game you wanted victory, but I didn't have a weapon? Well, it's just a uh, nervous night. You look frustrated on the Coach. pitch. Which is, is the game you wanted victory, but I didn't have a weapon. You wanted victory. Well, I wanted victory. Coach, is, is the game you wanted victory, but I didn't have a weapon. Where do you think you got it all wrong today?
1: Against them in the premises and we never said they are a baby. He's just a crying yeah. big baby, and we cannot call a player a baby.
0: Well, that was bizarre. <laughs> bizarre. <laughs> so, I'm just looking at the cover of Sweeper here, Ken. We didn't really get into that part yeah. of the chat with Seamus there. Sweeper! exclamation mark, by Steve Bruce. The cover is okay, so the scene is there's a manager looking a lot like Steve Bruce, or at least Steve. I've forgotten his... Uh, Steve Barnes. Mm-hmm. And so he's standing in a sort of a dugout, certainly at the bottom. It looks like the side of the pitch kind of applauding or pointing or something. He seems to have an assistant standing beside him who looks like he's standing for an anthem of some sort. The sweeper, the old groundsman, is walking along. He's trudging along there. Looks like an elderly gentleman there in a, sort of a tweed cap. For some reason, there's an Israeli flag. And... There's just an Israeli flag flying mm, unexplained at the and bottom. I, I
3: think I think that's like a Serb nationalist flag over there. I don't think that's like Arkan the
0: Tigers banner up at the top. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, that's an yeah, or certainly an old Yugoslavian. I, <laughs> I don't know what, what is going on with this stuff.
3: Uh, the that, the the cover of of uh, striker. That's a striker, yeah. Is actually better. I mean, how just drink that in? It's, Ooh, well, uh, that's it's,
0: actually a bit bloodthirsty.
3: It's a it's a it's a bizarre image. It's like a. It's a it's a picture of like a football pitch and the unusual thing about it is a, there's a dead player with the number 13 on his black well he he looks dead there's a bloody knife lying next to him on the grass and a pool of blood coming out of him um, the thing is he's about half the size of the pitch it's kind of quite quite weird like there's a linesman there and this player is is a lot uh, bigger. bigger ashley describes it duffy looks here like a recently divorced dad Reduced to crying himself to sleep each night on the subudio mat he leaves laid on his absent son's bedroom floor. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah. They're 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 just it's just an area that that not much has happened in, you know, football fiction set in the world of football. Yeah, you say
0: this. Yeah. I've just had a little search here and I found the Guardian uh, piece from a few years back, announcing their top ten football novels. Yeah. Number ten, The Hope That Kills Us, an anthology of Scottish football fiction. Right. Edited by Adrian Searle. Number nine, The Football Factory by John King. I haven't read it. Hooligan related. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. uh, J.L. Carr's How Steeple Cinderby Wanderers won the FA Cup. That's number eight there. Number seven, The Man Who Hated Football by Will Buckley. I'm not going to go through the blurb in each of these. The Arsenal Stadium Mystery, yeah, as I mentioned, by Leonard Orr Gribble was better remembered as a black and white movie, but the book itself was a huge hit in the 1930s. Apparently before the movie. I think I've seen parts of that movie I've never watched it through in my entirety. You haven't seen it Murphy? Uh, no. movie buff such as myself, I,
2: I, I taped it off, DVR'd it off, uh, film four. Left it there on the DVR for about three years and then deleted <laughs> yeah. it when uh, space... Uh, there does machine.
0: come a time, if I haven't watched something in three years, am I realistically ever going to get around to watching probably it? probably
2: not going to happen now for the Arsenal football stadium mystery.
0: Here's one. Goalkeepers are different by Brian Glanville. As a young boy obsessed with football, my life changed after reading this gritty, beautifully paced account of the bitterness, frustrations and unglamorous lifestyle of an ordinary footballer. Felt like an authentic glimpse into a world of sideburn, centre-halves, dilapidated dressing rooms and muddy fields. Glanville was and remains one of the doyens of football writing, according to this piece. The Match by Alan Sillito. Uh, we've got The Unfortunates by B.S. Johnson, number three. Number two is The Damned United by David Peace. Uh huh. But does that really count? Sure, it was a fiction, said David Peace. But, I mean, it was largely just telling the story of Brian Clough's 44 days at Leeds United or whatever it was.
3: Well, a uh, fiction league, according to Brian Clough's family... Uh, John Giles and various other...
0: Well, wasn't Giles particularly uh, annoyed at the idea that because Peace called it a fiction, a work of fiction, he could then, he felt as a novelist free to just write whatever he wanted to write. Whereas Giles' view of it and the Clough family's view and it was, hang on a second, you're using a lot of facts in there as well, yeah. which... Leads people to believe that all of this is true. So then, when they read some of the stuff that clearly is, not fact,ually true, they get all confused and flustered. So Giles was successful in that, didn't he? He got a he got a piece of it taken out of the later editions.
3: Uh, I think he did. I think there's some differences between the initially printed ones and the later printed ones. I mean, the John Giles character in it doesn't come across as a sympathetic figure. Uh, he is definitely an he's an he's an antagonistic figure in the book to the to the central character, who some say is a little bit like Brian Clough. Um, and the, the John Giles figure seems to uh, be, have, have his nose a little out of joint that uh, he didn't get the job that Brian got Which, in fact, is exactly what happened because, <laughs> because Don Revy recommended Brian or recommended John Giles as his successor, but the Leeds board decided to go a different way.
0: I quite liked Giles's, uh, that, that depiction of Giles as compared to how he was in the movie version.
3: Well, in the movie version, he was a six-foot-three-inch, a gangling six-foot-three-inch simpleton. I mean, it didn't... Uh, it didn't, didn't seem it, to make a huge amount of sense. It just didn't make sense at all. <laughs> it was, why, I mean, oh, I'm going
0: to go over and take
3: this quarter. Why, these are
0: his kind of lines, you know. Why
3: is Giles this uncoordinated galoot? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, he was... That was a... Bum. He just looked like he was... Well, in fairness, how many actors play footballers on the pitch? Well, not many, I would say. But well, this guy particularly... Well, hire a short one, then. You know I mean? Come yeah. on. Like... Hire a, hire a, a
3: short, nimble little guy. You know, you don't you don't want to have this big, this sort of swaying, <laughs> swaying like uh, yeah. It, it like, didn't work. Yeah, but, it I mean, bit well Morgan Freeman played. But was Bremner job? worse? I mean, the guy they had playing Bremner was was actually a, a reasonably a well known actor whose name escapes me at the moment. Oh, um, he's in like it was this Liverpool. Liverpool England, leave, wasn't it? Is he Liverpool? In or have you just seen him playing a Liverpool. In? He's in like Snatch. So I think yeah. that's the first thing I saw. him in. He's in like this. Is it. He's in loads of stuff. You know him. Wow. What's his name? having a
2: look? You S- can Stephen Graham.
3: Stephen Graham, but Stephen Graham. I think I know that Billy Bremner was 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 very much a senior player by the by the time. That can mean over thirty. Well, the wrong side of thirty, but not that far the wrong side of thirty. You know, he just. I don't know why
0: they couldn't have got some of little warrior. Number one, Park. the best ever football novel. Can is cruelly not striker, nor is it sweeper. What whatever is it? the other book written by Steve Bruce is it's called A Kestrel for a Knave by Barry Hines Hines's 20 page account of a football match was immortalised by Ken Loach in the film Kez like David's story in this sporting life he's unafraid to use sport as a metaphor for Yorkshire insularity and like Story who played rugby league for Leeds he knew what he was writing about having turned out for the England grammar school team
2: bit of a stretch though really isn't it Kez
0: it's a short Kestrel story a
3: no that's a novel
0: A Kestrel for a Knave, Knave is, is, a novel.
3: is a novel yeah. 20 pages
2: no, I mean, I think what he's talking about is twenty pages worth of football in this much longer novel. That sounds like it, yeah. So, so it is, so it is the it
3: is the book that was made into the movie. Kes, is that it? Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. I
0: and mean, it's a great book. Yeah, it's a,
3: quite a funny football scene as well.
0: Prediction for tonight, again?
3: Um Ireland to win by one goal. Two one, the usual. I'll go. Have the two usual, please,
0: Georgia. I'll have the usual, Georgia, as well. Owen, We're please. all going two ones all round. Yeah, Why well <laughs> not? Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, Enjoy so, the thank game, and we will have, just ring that bell again, Murph, just to indicate that we have a special. Yeah, we'll have a podcast, a review, Art and Georgia review pod out tomorrow. Thanks, million. That's one more bell. The <laughs> is that, that's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They
1: never go home. They never go home. Those those those
3: boys.